thank you for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Hugh. Pleasure. I'd like to start um, just something that's in the modern day. Recently, you were involved with the Clyde One Shaking Keevans campaign. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? What was it like working with Simple Minds Jim Kerr, among yeah. others? Uh, entirely the brainchild of Gavin Pearson, who uh, is on Clyde Two. And it took a year to make because we had to wait for Stephanie to give birth to her child. <laughs> uh, we first of all filmed me with Steph uh, when she was heavily pregnant. Steph's on the sales department here. Uh, and Steph then had her boy. Uh, and so we could film me and Steph and the, her boy. Uh, Jim Kerr was the, the first celebrity, if you like, that we filmed and uh, it was first thing in the morning and Jim had suffered the loss of his father two weeks before and I knew his father and uh, we, Gavin wanted him to do the Merry Christmas from Clyde too but also to do the Don't Hugh Forget About Me and Jim said oh, we'll just do the Clyde too but uh, so we're sitting up filming and uh, he said did you hear my wee dad as he called him and I said uh, yeah I did uh, very sorry about that uh, and I said to him but I envy you in a way and uh, he said why I said well my father died when I was 10 years old and I never felt that I had a proper father and son relationship so I envy you because you had your dad up until you were the age of 60. And he, he thought about it. And then he said, what was that other thing you wanted me to sing? Now, I, I didn't set Jim up. We were having a conversation and I was being factually correct. I envied him the relationship with his dad because I didn't have one. Uh, so he's a very, very nice man, Jim. Um, Michelle McManus, a lovely girl, known her a long time uh, but everyone was fantastic uh, the, the, the Ian McCall's Kenny Miller Chris Boyd Scott Brown Ryan Christie uh, and to have that kind of thing going on when you're 70 years old is, is quite something and the best bit for me is that my youngest grandchild Ruben sings it to me every time he sees me <laughs> he's only four and he thinks it's great that's the main thing, absolutely. And to to go back to and to, to obviously football and, and yourself, you in terms of growing up, you were born in the nineteen fifties. No, no, born in the nineteen forties. Forties, sorry. Yeah. Born in the nineteen forties. Um what was it like growing up in that era, the football and landscape, and who were your heroes growing up? Um I was brought up in Partick, uh, which is, you know, the 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 heart and soul of Glasgow for me. Uh whenever it, People ask me where do you come from, uh, always Partick, uh, because uh, you know the 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 football then was terrific, and I remember uh, queuing up outside the paper shop waiting for the the evening newspaper to come on a Saturday night with the scores from all over. Far less sophisticated times. I mean, no super scoreboards or Sky Television, twenty four hour sport, none, nothing like that. Uh, so it was a great place uh, and you can walk up to Partick Thistle literally walk up to Maryhill to Partick Thistle 
get the subway to Ibrox or the Govan Ferry to Ibrox. Um, first old film game I ever saw. I was ten years old. Me and my pal ran away because <laughs> we were told that we couldn't go, so we ran away and uh, went on the Govan Ferry. No charge. Got lifted over. No charge. Uh, saw the game. Came back on the ferry. No charge. And then come back. And my mother had obviously been looking for me. And I got an old-fashioned hiding from my mother, who had lost her husband weeks before, and I had just worried her sick. So no complaints. I was deserving of the hiding. <laughs> and... Uh, we got to see our very first old firm game. So it was just a great time. Football mad school. Um, same school that Billy Conley went to. Tosh McKinley. Pat McKinley. Uh, so steeped in football from that age. Get the bus at the top of our street and go to Hampden. Or to Lanark at Cathkin, who were a thriving football club then. Or Clyde at Shawfield. So, the world was your oyster. Perfect place to grow up then in terms of football. Yeah. Um, everybody, but everybody, uh, was into the football. Uh, we had, the, my father came from uh, Govan. Uh, we were Partick and we used to go over New Year's Day and play Govan versus Partick in Elder Park in Govan. <laughs> uh, so just a, a great time to be a wee boy who loved football. That leads me on perfectly to Hugh Keevens, the footballer. What position did you play? What was your ability? Uh, well, my game lacked only one thing, and that was ability. <laughs> uh, uh, left back, uh, St Peter's Primary School, um, with a beautiful strip, red and white quarters, uh, very distinctive. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I would kid anybody on. Uh, I absolutely loved football, but like the majority, I wasn't good enough to be professional or anything like good enough to be professional. But that doesn't stop you loving it, playing morning, noon and night. Uh, and then it was my good fortune after I, when I left school, I worked for a while as a civil servant and then got into football writing. So... If you can't play it, the very next thing to do is go and write about it. Uh, so that was my good fortune. Who would you say was your, your main football hero growing up? Who did you, who did you, posters you had in your wall, or who was the sort of guys you looked right up to? Uh, for me, and I've said this before, and that there's no crime in it, uh, uh, I was brought up in a Celtic family and my hero as a boy was Billy McNeil because he was the first one that you could associate with. Uh, the, the rest, when I started to go to football, looked like older men. Uh, you know, the Charlie Tullys and the Bobby Evans and the uh, Bobby Collins or whatever. They looked like older men. Uh, but Billy McNeil was the first one who kind of looked like he belonged to us. Yeah. And he was an outstanding player an outstanding human being, uh, but he was my boyhood hero. So you've talked there about you as 
a footballer, you were a left back, you said the one thing you lacked was ability. Yeah. And the best thing to do if you can, as you say, play football is to work in football, whether it's broadcasting or writing. I want to talk now about your route into broadcasting. You've been at Clyde One for for what feels like forever, I'm sure. And, and 35 years. Which is an incredible amount of time. How did that route into broadcasting come about? Purely by accident. Uh, I'll start by saying, if ever I write my memoirs, they will be called, that guy's got a weird voice. <laughs> and the story around that being, I had written a book on the history of the Scottish Cup to coincide with the 100th Scottish Cup final. And I wrote it with uh, my good friend, Kevin McCara. Kevin was a graduate of Glasgow University. And on that basis, the publishers decided that when we were going to do um, the publicity surrounding the book, Kevin should go to the BBC. He was a Glasgow University graduate and therefore an intellectual. <laughs> uh, I was a product of St Peter's Primary School and St Thomas Aquinas Secondary School. And in the publisher's eyes, I should go to Radio Clyde. So I came to Radio Clyde and asked if they could in any way publicise the book. The following day, uh, I was called and asked where I was going. It was a Saturday and I said Hamden and uh, Richard Park, who was then in charge of sport at Radio Clyde, he was going to Hamden. I recorded an interview with Richard at Hamden and I went back home that evening and my children had recorded the interview. Uh, and we thought, that was nice. Or on the radio for a while, very nice. The following Monday, Paul Cooney, who was um, Richard's uh, number two, he uh, called me and said, we'd like to have you come in, have a chat. And within a week, I was on Radio Clyde, um, taking the place of Jimmy Sanderson, who had gone to work at the Commonwealth Games press office for a year. And I came in and replaced Jimmy on the lunchtime sports desk. Uh, after I'd been at Radio Clyde for 30 years, they were kind enough to do uh, a little feature on 30 years of me being here. And I met Paul shortly after that, and he said, you know, it was me who told him it was your 30th anniversary. And he said, do you know how it all started? He said, we listened back to your interview. And Richard Park said, that guy's got a weird voice. <laughs> and therefore, that's how it all started. I had no background in broadcasting. I never for one moment thought that I would ever be involved in broadcasting. And that's how life can sometimes have very odd twists and turns of fate. 35 years later, I'm still here. You've mentioned there 35 years, Super Scoreboard's been around, as you've said, for decades. When you first arrived in Super Scoreboard, did you ever envisage that you'd be here 30 years or so on and the show would be more popular now than arguably ever? Not a chance. Uh, I um, would not say that I took to it like a duck to water. I was extremely nervous. Uh, I remember actually at one time suffering panic attacks uh, on air because, as I say, I was not brought up in broadcasting. Uh, I came into it by chance 
But I think the longer you go on, then obviously practice makes perfect. Uh, not everyone likes you, <laughs> uh, but that's fine. That's the nature of the business. Uh, and when you arrive at the age I am now, you're perfectly relaxed because um, pretty much you've seen it all and done it all. Uh, and the, the, the arrival of social media has changed it a bit, but you have to learn to roll with the blows there as well. In terms of Clyde One, we've talked about social media there, fans' passion. Does fans' passion, or has it for you, ever spilled over to any safety concerns or a time you felt threatened? Uh, I was punched once at Tynecastle uh, after a Celtic game there. And I, I, I did say to the studio, I, I was with Davy Proven, we were the commentary team. It was in the era of George Cadet. And I said to them, don't come to us at the full-time whistle because of a kind of sinister atmosphere around about us. Um, Hearts had been in the lead, Celtic had scored two late goals, Cadet had scored the winner. And I said, don't come to us at the final whistle, let the fans get out. But, such is the nature of the business, <laughs> uh, I think they came to us first. And I, I stood up so that I could see what was going on round about me. Uh, but um, the, the gentleman who had been sitting directly behind us, uh, he got up and he punched me. And I fell back and thankfully the, the heart supporters caught me. Uh, and just raised me back up again. Uh, it, it, it could have been serious, uh, and the, it turned out that the gentleman had borrowed his grandfather's season ticket. <laughs> uh, so it, his emotions completely got the better of him. Uh, but that was the only, I think from memory, that was the only time that I've ever been physically attacked. In terms of fans' passion on the show, it's what a lot of people think makes the show. Have you got any memorable calls you remember from over the years? Uh, the, two things happened. Uh, I came home one night and I said to my wife, uh, you know, pretty eventful tonight. And she said, uh, what's the one over? And I said, uh, I said, guy one. Now, this is how long ago the story occurred. It was a call about Danny McGrain. And we were brought up beside Danny in Drumchapel when we moved there in our teens. Uh, and I said, I, yeah, I just couldn't get him to understand the point I was trying to make about Danny. And she said, oh, I know. And I said, how do you know? And she said, he was calling from here. She <laughs> uh, uh, said, do you remember that the, the guy came this morning to plumb in uh, the tumble dryer? I said, well, it was a long day at it. And at five o'clock he said to me, Mrs. Keevans, would you mind if I use your telephone? And he called Super Scoreboard to talk to you. And I said, you're telling me that I was getting verbally abused on the radio and I was paying for the call at the same time? And he said, well, you deserve all you get. <laughs> uh, the, the only other one I... Uh, with regard to passion, uh, when my late mother-in-law was nearing the end, she was at the Beats in hospital, and uh, 
my wife, two daughters, four sisters-in-law. Uh, they were all in the room, it was women only. And the sound of sobbing would have broken your heart. Um, and I stood outside, not knowing quite what to do, and uh, was conscious of uh, someone saying, are you Hugh Cavins? And I said, yeah. Who do you think will win the league? And I said, uh, I can't remember whether I said Celtic or Rangers, but it was obviously one of them. And he said, you're kidding. And I said, listen, you asked me who I thought would win the league. I've given you a reply. I think you can hear the sound of women crying down the corridor. Uh, that's my family. And he looked above my head at the sign which said High Dependency Unit and he said, nothing serious I hope. And he walked away. <laughs> so, you know, that's okay. I can look back on that and find it quite funny. But at the time you think, can you not hear the women crying here? Yep, absolutely. You know, but anyway, that's how folk get. You mentioned obviously you've got children of your own, you've got grandchildren now as well. How do they react when people come up to you in the street and say hello or ask for a picture? Um, my oldest grandchild is now 19. She finds it hysterically funny <laughs> that people stop this grey-haired old man uh, and uh, chat away about football or have a photograph taken. My youngest grandchild is four and he sings Merry Christmas from Clyde One <laughs> every time he sees me now. Uh, so he thinks it's great. Uh, my children are pretty much middle-aged now, so uh, they just accept it as a way of life. Um, you know, we've had people around the house for years and years who were famous footballers, so they were kind of used to it all. Uh, but the grandchildren think it's great. In terms of yourself, we talked about you getting into Clyde, you've been here for 35 years, the unique voice, the the ability to, to go for an opinion and, and back it up and not be scared what other people think. Because of those qualities that we've mentioned there, have you ever had an offer to leave Clyde for anywhere else? No, never. Uh, uh, I was told by one person that uh, I've always been spoken about by another radio station but they assumed that I would not leave Radio Clyde and in actual fact that was a perfectly correct assumption to make because I always think that at the time when I was taken on uh, I had a young family and to be brutally honest uh, people with young families uh, any additional revenue is always very handy uh, but over the the years over the decades, Radio Clyde and the people here have become extended family. Uh, obviously, it's not going to happen now anyway, but I would go even if someone asked me. Uh, being here has been uh, a pleasure and a privilege and uh, very, very fortunate to have had the experience. Uh, and uh, um, I would never have gone and I never will go if even if somebody came along at this advanced stage in the game. <laughs>
In I'm interested to ask one last question about Clyde is am I right in saying Gordon Duncan wasn't born when you started working for Radio Clyde? Correct. Uh, I, I don't actually know how old Gordon is but I do know that he wasn't born when I started here. And that's a good thing because over the years um, you know all the personalities that I have worked with from Richard Park, Paul Cooney, uh, Peter Martin, uh, Jim Delahunt, uh, Jerry McCulloch, um, they've, they've all been different and I've had to adapt uh, and think fast on your feet. Now, when you're working with someone who wasn't born when you started, uh, he really and truly does bring the modern day dimension to it and Gordon does keep me on my toes uh, I, I like his style of presentation uh, and I really have to think and think quickly so they've all been great uh, I, I look upon every one of them as a friend uh, and it's been good to, to have to adapt to a different style of play so to speak In your career over the years in broadcasting and writing you've You've interviewed and, and chatted away to some of the biggest characters in, in, in world football, not just Scottish football. I'm interested to focus now on some of the characters. Um, first of all, Sir Alex Ferguson. Were you mm. ever a, a victim of the infamous hair dryer? Oh yeah, I've had the, the whole lot. Uh, <laughs> Alex, uh, when he was manager of St Mirren, uh, I was told to do a, a three-week series on Alec for... A newspaper called the, the the Weekly News, which was very popular back in the day, nineteen seventies, and we paid him by giving his wife a washing machine. That <laughs> uh, that was the, you know, rather than accept a financial payment, subject to tax, we bought Kathy a washing machine. Uh, the fact that I came from, well, my father came from Covent, that meant an awful lot to Alec, who was the, the biggest Govanite that he could find. And, uh, you know, he used to quiz me regularly, um, you know, where did your grandmother and my grandfather live and who else was there and what, what street did they live in? And uh, So the fact that I was uh, the son of a governed man, that was good enough for him. Uh, but uh, there then came the day, first day of the season, after Aberdeen had won the European Cup Winners' Cup against Real Madrid in Gothenburg. The first day of the season, they played Motherwell uh, at Fippa, and they were poor, very poor. And the press then uh, were huddled in the foyer at Fir Park and Alec came from the director's area upstairs and he started his tirade against me from the top to the bottom of those stairs <laughs> Jeez. and he said the, the gist of it was I'm not listening to anything you have to say about Aberdeen because you never come and watch us play you're never at Pataudry so I'm back to the office and I checked and the the season before, the season in which they won the European Trophy, I had been at Petaudry 19 times. Uh, 
So in those days, uh, you could phone a manager at home. Uh, and I waited till he got back to Aberdeen and I phoned his house. And I said, listen, I've gone back and checked. I was at Pataudry 19 times last season. He gave me a famous Glasgow reply and put the phone down. On the following Monday, Aberdeen flew to Reykjavik to begin the defence of the Cup Winners' Cup. And he and I avoided eye contact or any other form of contact uh, until after the game. And he said to me, uh, where's your hotel? And it was literally across the road from the, well, I'd say stadium, a fairly modest ground in Reykjavik. <laughs> and he said, which room are you in? I gave him the number. And he said, right, get your guys together. So I got all the other press guys there and I said, I don't know what he wants, but he wants you all to congregate in my room. And then he came. And I thought, uh-huh, what's all this about? And he said, uh, listen, he said, I gave him what for in front of an audience on Saturday. And I'm going to apologise to him in front of an audience. And he said, yours was just the first big ball face that I saw coming down the stairs. <laughs> so in other words, in his disappointment, he'd singled out one individual and given me the hair dryer. Uh, to this day, uh, I think he is the greatest Scottish manager of all time uh, because of what he did with Aberdeen to win two European trophies with Aberdeen is miraculous the body of work that he achieved at Old Trafford was nothing short of phenomenal and everyone can have their own opinion but for me he is the greatest manager of all time to come from this country a terrible man when he's uh, tempers up, but <laughs> the greatest manager of all time. I move from Sir Alec on to another manager who was a, an incredible manager, but similar to Sir Alex when his temper was up. I can imagine he, he gave you a right good bluster, and that's Jim McLean. What was he like to work with? Fabulous. Um, if you could get a headline story out of Jim McLean, you were a really bad reporter. Uh, he spoke in headlines. He brought about the modern day Dundee United to win the league at Dens Park in the way in which he won it was nothing short of sensational uh, but the temper oh my <laughs> uh, he once banned me and three others for singing on a bus uh, we'd flown I think to Romania uh, well on the bus and the driver had put on uh, what was then popular a cassette <laughs> but a cassette and a cassette player and uh, to the best of my recollection it was a Beatles song and we sang along with it and uh, he said that the Glasgow press that was typically the Glasgow press you know we're here for a serious football match and they're singing so he banned us all and then later that night he came along to the room and gave us a bottle of whiskey and said, just forget about the band. But again, a fabulous football manager. He didn't take the Rangers job, 
when it was offered to him. And I think, I, with the benefit of hindsight, that was probably a good thing because I, I think the whole pressure of it all, the, the magnitude of the job, I think it might have got to him. Um, but again, a wonderful, wonderful football manager. Before I go to two or four people who are linked, two to Celtic, two to Rangers, this guy I'm about to mention is linked to, to Celtic primarily, but mostly Aberdeen and Leeds United and Manchester United. Gordon Strachan, what yeah. was he like to, to interview as a player and then as a manager, especially in Scotland? I love me, Gordon. Uh, but a prickly wee man at times. <laughs> uh, I remember going to see him in uh, San Marino. He was there. In fact, we're staying in Rimini, which is just along the road from San Marino. Yep. And they'd been named England's Player of the Year and uh, wandered along to the hotel and uh, I asked for him at reception and he came down, I always remember he was eating a banana <laughs> and, and he said, what do you want here? I was sleeping. I said, I came to tell you you're England's Player of the Year. Uh, and so, you know, he, he could be with that. Uh, when he was Celtic's manager, uh, with a memorable confrontation uh, where I described him in uh, the Daily Record as being sexist. So uh, I got, the next time I was uh, at Lennox Town, I got called out and told that I was to go and see him in his office. Uh, I said, shoot, nice to see you, sit down. He said, uh, what qualifies you to call me sexist? I said, what qualifies you to tell me I'm not qualified to call you sexist? And he looked at me as if I had just landed from Mars. <laughs> uh, and I said, so listen, Gordon, just save it. I'm older than you. Uh, I thought the way you treated a lady reporter was unfair. She was at her work. The press room is her place of work. And you treated her, I thought, in a disdainful way. And that's why I, I described him as sexist. Uh, now I went back and I thought when he wanders in here he's going to start his press conference by saying uh, it's you you need to leave but he did fair enough he he accepted what I had to say uh, and we got on and I, I always enjoy his company I think he's a very funny man uh, highly opinionated but aren't we all uh, but if I was on a night out, I'd like Gordon Strachan there as well. <laughs> and going to the um, Celtic and Rangers um, connection, obviously Clyde Super Scoreboard covers primarily Celtic and Rangers because of the nature of the demographics. First of all, um, from the Rangers side, um, Walter Smith and Ali McCoyst, two really memorable characters. Ali especially as a player, Walter as, as, a, as a manager as well. Mm. What were they like to, to interview over the years and chat to? Walter Smith is one of the Best men I've ever had the pleasure to meet. And I'll tell you a quick story to underline what this man is like. Uh, my wife's nephew had uh, had a brain operation and was in a fairly poor condition. Uh, he came up to Glasgow because they were uh, born in, in England and lived in uh, Milton Keynes. Came up to Glasgow and his dad asked me if I could get him a tour of Ibrooks. And uh, we drove there in his dad's car and I went in the front door long before 
Murray Park or whatever they call it now. Uh, and Walter came out from the shower and he said to me, Shug, was I supposed to see you? And I said, no. And he said, well, I said, Walter, I'm here to ask you a favour. I said, what? I said, I've got my wife's nephew out there and he's had a hard time of it medically. He's had a brain operation and he, he, he really loved a tour of Africa. And Walter interrupted me right away and he said, are you telling me you've got Rangers supporters in your family? <laughs> and I said, yeah. yeah. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, his dad was too nervous to come in, too shy. So we brought in my wife's nephew and Walter Smith said to me, just you sit there. I'll take him on the tour. And Walter Smith, the Rangers manager, took my wife's nephew away for ages. And he, to this day, has a picture book with all the, the Goffs and the Durants and McCoists. And, uh, Walter made sure that everyone could photograph taken with him and made sure that he, he had a memorable day. That that is that's the, amazing. That's the mark of the man. Uh, again, a, a wonderful football manager into the bargain. Coisty. Uh, yes. Uh, fabulous. Uh, you know, uh, you always meet Alan McCoist the same way. I remember the night that uh, he danced the fandango with Neil Lennon on the touchline. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the Celtic Rangers game. Now the following day, uh, I was having a question answer session on behalf of my daughter's school. My daughter teaches in a special needs school. And we try every year to raise funds for the school. And I thought, well, Ali was my big guest. And I thought, well, that's that then. <laughs> he, he won't be anywhere near it and I was, I was trying to think what we're going to do all the tickets are sold and my headline act has just danced the fandango with Neil Lennon on the touchline uh, and phone rang and uh, up came the name Ali McCoist and I thought oh, here we go and I said I know I know and he said no you don't know he said I'm only phoning you to tell you that I will be there tonight and I want you to tell your daughter that I will be there. Uh, he turned up and he was absolutely terrific. But to this day, has never let on what was said between him and Neil Lennon. <laughs> and to be fair to Neil, he doesn't tell you either. That's true. Uh, but again, the mark of the man. Uh, he, he didn't have a successful time as Rangers manager, but I think that uh, anyone would have struggled given the circumstances that the, the club was working under then. But a fantastic goal scorer for club and country. And in this life, you can only speak as you find. And Ali McCoyst, for me, is an absolute tough. <laughs> that leads me on to the Celtic. Um, two icons I'd like to mention. And sadly, both of them are no longer with us. I'd like to start, first of all, with Tommy Burns. What an absolute icon. Yeah. Uh, when I look back, when I'm 
sitting in the, the rocking chair, thinking back about it all, uh, the, the writing of Tommy's book will be one of my greatest memories. Um, we had to finish the book quickly because Tommy's a, a terrible man for <laughs> punctuality. It, it, it didn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> and I said to him, listen, Tom, the publisher's going mad. We need to finish the book and this weekend. So can you come to my house Saturday and Sunday? It was a close season and we'll get it done. So he turned up on the Saturday and, and he came. And uh, at that time, my mother and my wife's mother were still alive. And my wife would take the three kids to their grannies on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, so, hugs all round, and away they went. And ten seconds later, doorbell, and it was my wife, and I said, there's a wee boy outside, he saw Tommy arriving. So, uh, he came in, and Tommy, Tommy loved every Celtic supporter individually. I've always said that he didn't love them in batches of ten, or a hundred, or 500, or the Jockstein stand, or the Lisbon Lions stand. He loved each and every man, woman and child who supported Celtic on an individual basis. So the wee boy came in, uh, photograph taken, and uh, that was great. Away went. Door closed. Bye-bye. Say hello to my mother and say hello to your, your mother. Ten seconds later, doorbell. I went back and I said, what is it? Boy said, the whole street knows he's here. <laughs> uh, and I mean, they were chewing up my garden path and down the street. And they came in and the photographs and the, uh, and Tommy did not close the door until the last one had got his autograph and all the rest of it. Uh, so we. We worked away and we worked away and the following day at 10 o'clock on the Sunday night I always remember my wife opened the living room door and said Burns get out I want my husband back <laughs> and we rolled up the papers and get everything done and that was the end of the book uh, Twists and Turns and uh, we were just about to go to press with it and uh, Tommy wanted a particular dedication at the front of the book. And we'd been chatting and I told him that he'd come up to the office uh, and, and give me what he wanted by way of a dedication. Uh, and I said, I, I need to go quickly because it's my mother's birthday. So I, I was working for the Scotsman newspaper at that time. And the lady at the front desk said, um, Tommy Burns is here to see you. And I said, right, yeah. And he got to the desk and said to me, come on outside, son. And I said, well, in the car, opened the boot, and there was a case of champagne there. <laughs> and he said, for your mother, son, for your mother's birthday. Celtic had won the cup the previous Saturday, and I thought, He's nicked that champagne out of the boardroom. <laughs> uh, 
Now, I don't know whether he did or he did, but I have my suspicions. Yes. Uh, but that's what Tommy was like. Uh, the, the most beautiful man. Uh, unbelievable sadness when he died. His funeral was like a state funeral. Uh, and I'll always remember him fondly and uh, I just think it's such a terrible tragedy that uh, in the time that Tommy's been away, uh, you know, I had one grandchild when Tommy passed away and I've now got six. That's how time passes. But the tragedy is that Tommy had one grandchild when he passed away. And he's getting more now, uh, and he didn't get the chance to see them, which is the tragedy. The other Celtic legend I'd like to talk to you about, someone who was, you mentioned earlier on, was your all-time footballing hero growing up, and sadly passed away, as we know, um, last year, which was heartbreaking, not just for Celtic fans, but, but Scottish football as a whole, and that's Billy McNeil. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about Billy. Well, I started in uh, newspapers on the 5th of January, 1970. In other words, just over 50 years ago. And on the 6th of January, 1970, I was told to go out to interview Billy McNeil at Celtic Park. And you remember that two and a half years earlier, he had become the first uh, Briton to lift the European Cup in Lisbon. And in those days, there were no PR machines. Uh, you simply stood outside the front door of Celtic Park and Billy came out and I introduced myself. And uh, he gave me all the time that I wanted. He didn't think to himself, this young man is telling me that he started in newspapers 24 hours ago. He didn't have any big time Charlie about him at all. He gave me all the time in the world and every time he saw me thereafter he would, he would ask how things were. And, uh, from the 6th of January 1970 until he passed away uh, it was always uh, a pleasure to see him. Uh, he will go down as, uh, for me, the greatest person ever to have played for Celtic. Uh, he might not have been the greatest player that Celtic ever had, but he was inspirational. He captained Celtic twice, and when Billy said that there was a fairy tale aspect to Celtic, uh, he was the one most entitled to say that because he wrote most of the fairy tales. I don't mean he captained Celtic twice, he managed Celtic twice. The centenary year, you can imagine the, the, the pressure that must have been on any Celtic manager to Absolutely. manage the club in the centenary year, and he won it with a leading cup double. And he always did things in the most dramatic fashion. So he was a wonderful person, a wonderful centre-half, a wonderful manager, and he took the good times and the bad times with Celtic, and there were bad times. I mean, let's not forget that he was um, 
removed from office twice. Uh, but he took all of that and never lost his love of the institution that is Celtic. Uh, and if you can be pleased about these things, uh, I was pleased that his funeral was a beautiful, beautiful occasion in St Aloysius Church. Uh, and I thank Celtic for uh, making sure that uh, I got into the church uh, because it meant a lot to me. We've talked then about the incredible characters of Scottish football and they've had an impact on the world stage as well and staying with the world stage, um, you've covered many World Cups and, and major tournaments, major European football matches. Is for you, Hugh, in terms of a purely footballing spectacle, is working at a World Cup the pinnacle of your career? Well, part of this very, very fortunate career that I have had uh, has been to attend three World Cup finals on three different continents. Uh, the USA in 1994, uh, Europe, France 98, and uh, Asia, uh, Japan in 2002. Uh, there's nothing, nothing like it. Uh, imagine being given the opportunity to go to America and to Japan to cover football, and somebody's paying you to do it. <laughs> I mean, how jammy is that? Um, America was uh, sensational. The first game I saw there was uh, the Republic of Ireland against Italy uh, in the, the giant stadium, New Jersey, and uh, Ray Houghton, boy from Glasgow, scores the goal. Uh, I'll never forget it, the whole trip. Um, Asia, Tokyo, my uh, Twitter handle, for want of a better word, uh, is Shinjuku Shug, and that Shinjuku was the, the area of Tokyo that I stayed in. Uh, a life enriching experience to, to go to Asia for five weeks uh, and to meet the people that I did there. Uh, the, one of my favourite authors is uh, Bill Bryson an American who lives in, in England and Bill was there as a sketch writer and Bill and I stayed in the same hotel and uh, most evenings would have Bill loved two things a curry <laughs> and a beer uh, and we had many meals together and he was an absolutely charming man. Uh, the most enjoyable one though would be France because Scotland were playing there. Yep. Uh, and you know, if we'd all known then that that was going to be the last one that we'd be at, uh, we'd all have enjoyed it even more. <laughs> um, to go, my son turned up uh, in Paris the night before the, the first game came to the hotel and said to me that he didn't have a ticket for any game but he lived in London at that time he'd come to Paris because he just wanted to see the atmosphere or sense the atmosphere yep. uh, and we, we went on a wee tour of Paris that night and it was great uh, the football, you know, Brazil, 
were very unlucky against Brazil. Absolutely. Uh, we then fell away. Um, but all I can say is that I hope that my younger journalistic pals do finally get the chance to go to a major final, European or world final, uh, when Scotland are playing. Not there as uh, a guest to see others playing. Yeah. Staying on, you mentioned there, the last time we qualified, 1998, and I want to stay on the 90s. It was an era of Rangers dominance and a big flashpoint in your career for you was when you were kicked out of the Celtic Supporters Club by Kenny Dalglish. What was, what, how did that incident happen? To be fair, he didn't do it personally. Uh, there was a, a gentleman uh, who uh, was sent to throw me out. And I always remember... Um, a reporter colleague saying, you do know you're going to make him famous. And he gave me the same Glasgow reply that Alec Ferguson had given me. Uh, <laughs> and I was outside. Um, I think if you have an opinion, and so long as your opinion is not libelous or slanderous, uh, then we live in a free country. You're entitled to express it. Uh, I didn't think that the Kenny Dalglish experiment worked. Uh, as director of football, uh, where his title was. And I believe it was wrong to appoint John Barnes as manager, and totally inexperienced. And within eight months, he was out. Uh, so it was a, a contentious time. And I get thrown out as a result. Um, that notoriety stays with you. Um, so, Kenny Dalglish, for the avoidance of doubt, was top three best Celtic players of all time. But the experiment as director of football did not work. And sometimes the hardest thing to have in Scottish football is an opinion. Uh, we are a highly opinionated country, but it's all right at times for you to have an opinion but for you, it's not all right for me to have an opinion. And, and so we can fall out occasionally. I'm interested to, to move on to where our game is now, Hugh, um, in terms of the national team and the, the league and the league setup, or all four leagues, I should say, as a whole. Where do you think our game is now? And are you confident we will finally get to that major tournament this year? In terms of the national team, there is only one explanation why. Uh, we are where we are at the moment. Um, we do not have the players. In 1973, when we qualified for the World Cup, we had Joe Jordan and Dennis Law and Billy Bremner and, you know, Dalglish. Uh, we had a golden era. Uh, and so from 1974 in Germany to 1998 in France, we had 24 years of regular World Cup final appearances, of semi-regular European Championship appearances, because we had very, very good players. By the time we left France in 98, that gene pool, if I could put it that way, was beginning to diminish. And now Stevie Clark has 
a nucleus of very good players, but we don't have the strength and depth that we once had. Mm. Uh, I believe that um, with the Andy Robertsons and Kieran Tierney's and the Ryan Jacks and uh, Ryan Christie, uh, uh, Callum McGregor, James Forrest, etc., etc., I believe that we have uh, the basis of a good team. We just need reinforcements. Um, I, I wouldn't promise that we'll be at Euro 2020 because I am the kiss of death when it comes to predictions. <laughs> uh, we, we'll simply have to um, overcome Israel and in all probability Norway thereafter. Uh, so I'll say nothing about our qualification chances. Uh, I believe it would be good for the domestic game to have that boost of going to a major tournament. Our domestic game uh, is enjoyable. Uh, the tension in the air is at times too much. I think people should mind their manners. Uh, you know, I, I do understand the the basics of the rivalry between Celtic and Rangers. That ten in a row is the holy grail for Celtic fans, and ten in a row must be stopped. If you're a Rangers fan, I understand all of that. But there's a, there's a way of conducting your business and sometimes uh, we are straying into areas which do not reflect well on people or the country. Moving on to... We've moved on to where, sorry, the game is now. I'd like to move on to where you are now. I, was, I said this to you when I came in today, I think. For me now, from the outside looking in and speaking to my close friends and family... You seem to be more popular and respected now than ever, and in terms of the younger generation of fans, I think you you seem to be somebody that that fans really enjoy listening to. So, how do you feel about how you are um, portrayed and how people see you now? Um, I, I'm uh, very very grateful for what you've just said. Uh, I believe that uh, you should give everything a go. So when Jerry McCulloch uh, a few years ago suggested that I should get onto Twitter and I said, well, who's going to be interested in me tweeting that I've just been at the paper shop and bought <laughs> four rolls along with the Daily Mail? Um, so I did it and I did it at 11 o'clock on the Saturday morning and Jerry McCulloch said to me, let's see how many followers you've got by the time the programme starts at two. And I logged on or whatever it is you do uh, with Jerry's assistance. Uh, and when we started at two, I had 2,700 followers by two o'clock. Uh, and so it goes on. Uh, and I then gave them all a great laugh day after day by saying, what does FFS mean? <laughs> uh, and, you know, what's Tinder? Uh, so the, the, the newsroom would occasionally erupt when I asked these questions. Um, I, I think it's great, you know, I thoroughly enjoy it, but the level of malice that you encounter, the, the malevolence that you encounter can take you aback at times. 
But for the most part, people are great. Uh, and I am there to, uh, if the occasion demands, say something or other, or um, be as humorous as I can. Uh, I'm not interested in uh, being drawn into the madness. Uh, it's not for me. Uh, but people are appreciative, very kindly, and uh, I enjoy it. I, I, I can see the the wonder of it all. As I say, the, the malevolence and the malice can be disappointing, but you can avoid it by simply paying them no heed at all. I think as well, one of the things that, that is true in terms of the, the malice on Twitter and social media in general, I totally agree at times, it's just... It's abhorrent, really, with some of the things that are said. But I think one of the ways that Clyde and yourself dealt with that was the Mean Tweets video. And I think for yeah. a lot of people, that was very humorous. But I think also for the so-called trolls and things that want to have a go, it just kind of shuts them up in a way because it just showed them that you you can just laugh at it and not take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, I always say this, and believe me, I mean, when you're 70, your main priority is to be 71. Uh, so they don't mean anything. These people don't mean anything to me. Uh, when we did the Specky Tube, I I thought it was very funny. Uh, the the lady who runs my uh, grandson's nursery had never spoken to me until Specky Tube came out, <laughs> uh, and she told me how funny it had been. And, uh, that's great. Uh, the shaking Kevin's, um, you know, when I get my other grandson off the school bus. Uh, you know, you go down one day and the mothers are watching Shaking Kevens on their mobile phones and, uh, you know, it's lovely. You don't need to have the malevolent folk in your life if you don't want them there. Uh, as I say, we've got a, we've got a great product here. Uh, people outside of Celtic and Rangers are working their backsides off at Motherwell and at St Mirren and Aberdeen and wherever to try and be the best they can. Uh, and of course, there's a fascination in the Celtic Rangers rivalry between now and the end of the season. Those who overstep the mark, I'm not interested. Uh, you know, I don't want to be drawn in to their level of madness. I can ignore them because I don't need to be part of it. So I just ignore them. The question I'm, I'd like to ask, the last main question for you before we go into around the quickfire questions is, it's a question I think, obviously you mentioned there, you're 70, it's a question that as a big fan of Super Scoreboard and a fan of yourself, I hope the day doesn't come anytime soon in terms of when do you think, have you got a plan in terms of when you want to bow out of Clyde or are you just going to go on as long as you can? I didn't have a plan to get into Clyde and I don't have a plan to get out of Clyde. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I... I've always said to um, Lorraine Herbison, who runs the show here, uh, that if and when the time comes, uh, and she taps him on the shoulder and says, listen, it's been great, but time to go. I will walk out, head held high, look back and say, listen, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege. No animosity. Uh, but uh, I do not have that day in mind. I'm happy just to 
go along doing what I'm doing. And I came in here by chance. It wasn't planned. And I don't know what will take me out of here. Um, I'm happy to live in the present and not dwell on the future. In terms of the quick fire questions, the first question is, what's your what's been your favourite ground to cover football at and why? Um, I can have great memories of Ibrox Rangers four Celtic four. I can have great memories of uh, Celtic Park, uh, Celtic two Barcelona one. Uh, I can have great memories of Hamden Park, Joe Jordan's header to get us to the first World Cup. Uh, so I can also have great memories of Kobawi Park, no longer there. Now a McDonald's driving. Uh, when I lived in Clydebank uh, and, and uh, took my son there, my son didn't have a dad that could take him to the football because his dad was always working at the football. But on the occasional Wednesday night, we could go to Gobelli Park, walk there and walk home. Uh, so there are memories, you know, when your laptop packs up at Fir Park in the, the middle of Motherwell 6, Hib 6, <laughs> uh, that can be a memory of another kind. <laughs> so uh, lots of places have lots of memories. I don't want to lead you down the path of annoying a certain group of fans or a certain um, club, but as a journalist and as a broadcaster, is there a particular ground that you would say is one of your least favourite? And it might not be the ground itself, just in terms of the hassle of getting there or the hassle of getting out. Um, no. Uh, it's an awful long way to Dingwall. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but the loveliest people in the world you find up there. Uh, I remember my first sports editor whose name was John Rankin a former RAF man I, 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 ahead of his time and an absolute gentleman and when one day I was telling him about the difficulties in getting to the game and he said to me listen son nobody's interested in how you got to the game and how you get back from the game you were getting in there to work at the game. That's the important thing. I know that, that stuck with me. You know, it, it's not... Uh, lots of people go to different lines of work and have their daily hassles. Uh, I'm getting paid to write about football. How jammy is that? So, I, I, you know, if it takes you a while to get there, the train service is rotten. So what? Great answer. Um what about the best game or best games you've seen in your time? Because obviously you've had an incredible career, so I imagine you've got quite a few. Well, you go back to that Rangers 4, Celtic 4. You know, it was astonishing. Uh, my great pal, Murdo McLeod, made it 4-4 with 19 minutes to go. Every time Murdo tells a story, he gets further and further and further away from the goal. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the two teams came off to a standing ovation from both sets of fans. I mean, it, it simply wouldn't happen today. There's too much uh, malice in the air uh, whenever Rangers play Celtic at Ibrox or Celtic play Rangers at Celtic Park. But they come off that day to a standing ovation and I thought to myself, nobody 
but nobody other than these two can provide a game like that and evoke a response like that um, all sorts of games uh, when Martin and Haley's first goal from Derby 6-1 at Celtic Park astonishing atmosphere was it 6-2? 6-2 yeah um, I remember an unbelievable game with Rangers at Tannadice where I asked Dick Advocate a question afterwards and he had his finger very nearly up my nose telling me it was a stupid <laughs> question. Uh, so, lots and lots of memories. In terms of, what would you say is the most memorable goal through your time as as a reporter? Because obviously you've, you've, you've worked through some of the most memorable times in Scottish football history. Yeah, well, I mean, can you imagine trying to pluck one goal out of 50 years <laughs> you know it, it, it's it's impossible uh, the I, I really I'm, not often I'm lost for words but a goal out of 50 years I think is an impossible task in terms of is there maybe even a, a, a top selection of memorable moments in terms of goals um Big Joe scoring that goal uh, against Czechoslovakia to take us to that World Cup. Um, the the you know the the days like uh, when Celtic went to Love Street, David He was the manager, and with seven minutes to go, Hearts were the champions elect, and seven minutes later, it was Celtic who won. And there was an unbelievable goal that day, which uh, started with Danny McGrain in uh, Celtic's half of the field and finished up with Mo Johnson in the other half of the field. And it was a fantastic goal. Uh, and won a championship. Uh, I was at Fir Park when, with five minutes to go, Celtic were the champions, elect. And five minutes later, Scott McDonald had scored two goals. And... Uh, you know these moments are spine tingling I know that the game at Love Street was a pain in the neck for the Hearts supporters and probably the Rangers supporters uh, and the game at Fir Park was a pain in the neck for the Celtic supporters but not for the Rangers supporters who were <laughs> at Easter Road but that is the nature of the game uh, and I mean these days you know Peter Martin brought the expression into the football vocabulary um, the helicopter is turning and now we refer to helicopter Sunday mm. uh, to have been involved in all of that uh, when Celtic went to um, Boa Vista and for the second leg of the semi-final and uh, came back in a European final um, for the first time since Jockstein had taken them to one in 1970. Um, I'd been doing the programme here at Clyde and uh, we finished at 11 o'clock and just before then I got a phone call to say, could you stay on till midnight? And I said, look, I come in here at 6 o'clock this morning to be on George Bowie's programme and it's now 11 o'clock at night and I'll need to be back here at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, seven hours from now. 
be back on George Bowie's programme. So I said, can't. I went outside, there's a taxi there waiting for me. And I get in the taxi, and it didn't move. And I looked around the taxi thinking, is there something on? Is there a technical reason why we're not moving? And the taxi driver was, he said, Hugh, just give me a minute. And he was crying. Uh, and I thought, this is the effect that football has on people. He was crying because he was overcome by emotion. Celtic having reached a, a European final. And as I say, the, the grip that the game has on people is astonishing. Uh, and so long as they mind their manners, it's wonderful, wonderful to be part of it. The last question I'd like to ask you from the quickfire round here is if you had to make a Clyde Super Scoreboard five-a-side team who would be in it and who would manage it? <laughs> um, I need to think of uh, Gordon Duncan would be in it because he's got the, the young legs uh, Alec Ray would be in it because even though he's 50 he's got an unbelievably competitive spirit <laughs> Um Fraser Wishart for the old head at the back. Uh, me, because it's my team. <laughs> Good answer. And who else have we got left? Who's your last one? Uh, well, Mark Greedy was a good goalkeeper. Pro- professional standard. Uh, St Mirren at one time. So he could be a goal. And uh, in terms of manager? Um... Who's left? Uh, I think I need to be player manager. Great answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me on the Football CFB My podcast, you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Football CFB podcast with me, Callum McFadden. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at football underscore CFB and please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or through Anchor FM um, where I always post my links to the podcasts anyway. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I cannot wait to share my next one with you. Please join me again um, very soon when I'll have another football CFB with. But until next time, take care. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a 